Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be part of your day. And we hope it's a good day for you. We have plenty to talk about today, including new export numbers, new meat export numbers. We'll talk with the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation as we take a look at those uh, numbers about our business around the globe selling pork and beef we'll get an update also brian jennings ceo of the american coalition for ethanol will join us a number of biofuels issues including an introduction of some new legislation uh would help fund infrastructure improvements for biofuels also want to get his thoughts on the possibility of uh, an alliance between the biofuels industry and the oil industry in this ongoing effort uh with the push towards electric vehicles, should oil and biofuels work more closely together? We'll talk about that. And we'll have uh, some information about a new online program to help with uh, financing rented farmland. That's right. A group called Tillable has launched a new digital platform that would help simplify and streamline financing farmland rentals and we will talk more about that get the latest on that a little bit later on in the program but let's start it off with todd neely from dtn todd staying nice and warm in nebraska yeah we're trying how about you mike (laughs) it's a it's a struggle that's for sure winter is here big time well let's talk about a, a a number a number of things uh what how do you gauge the reaction so far from uh, the testimony of the committee hearings for Tom Vilsack and Michael Regan. No big surprises or bombshells. Do you think both are off to, a, as a wait confirmation, a fairly smooth start? Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Michael Regan. I I, I don't think either, uh, either nominee is going to have real difficulty in, in getting confirmed. Um, you know, Vilsack has faced some pushback from progressive groups. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see where that goes. But uh, in particular, we were we were tuning in to uh, Michael Regan last week, a hearing before a Senate committee. And uh, it was interesting. He said all the right things, it seems. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's going to have an open door policy. He's going to uh, listen to all sides. And, and uh, he seemed fairly, fairly open. Um you know, we'll see what happens once he takes the reins. But I, I think at least it was somewhat encouraging, you know, just to see that, you know, if we're going to look at the Clean Water Act again and, and those sorts of issues, the RFS, uh, that he certainly seems engaged and, uh, you know, really has an understanding so far of what those are. I would say both took the path of least resistance. Uh, they they stayed yeah. pretty open and, uh, and met, you know, stressed, uh, want to listen to everybody's views on these. Michael Regan has some very controversial uh, decisions to make uh, waters of the u.s yes. and rfs certainly but so will tom vilsack because he'll have he'll have decision making uh, uh power over some uh covid money here how that's going to be used and ha- you know who gets it and who doesn't get it uh, that'll be in his uh, bailiwick there at usda yeah absolutely and you know uh, based on what our experiences were in the last administration uh, you know, COVID money didn't seem to always go everywhere that it needed to go, at least in agriculture. Uh, you know, we had the biofuels industry that was uh, very much in need of some help, and uh, it never really came, you know, under the Trump administration. Uh, 
but I think Vilsack has a has a pretty solid background and understanding about uh, you know what biofuel producers go through and and what they mean in rural America. Um, and so if it ever comes down to that, where Vilsack is in you know making a decision on where uh, you know further further funds go, I, I do think that uh, it bodes pretty well for Ag having him in in uh, in USDA. And I think with Michael Regan, you know, he's still a bit of a, an open book. Um, you know, he he supported, or he was, I'm sorry, he was against uh, the Trump the Trump water rule that was that was uh, finalized, and uh, so we'll see what that means. I, I think it's, uh, you know, here we are again. We're at the start of a new administration, and uh, we really don't have a lot of, you know, good firm grasp on where things are going to go. Yeah, most of agriculture supported the new Trump rule, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, the honeymoon yeah. lasts until you start making these difficult decisions, right? And then how, whatever you side you come down on, the other side comes after you. Yeah, and, you know, it's it never really changes. I think, you know, it's kind of an ongoing cycle. We're going to always see opposition to whatever, uh, you know, the administrator of the EPA or the Ag Secretary does. It's just the nature of the, of the business, but... Um, you know, I think ad groups by and large are kind of sitting back and seeing where things go. You know, they know more, a lot more about Vilsack than they do Regan. And so I think there's a level of comfort there. All right. Some other news. Uh, we have some ag in the courtroom again. Tyson hit with a new class action lawsuit. Yeah. You know, uh, throughout the whole COVID-19 lockdowns and, and, the, and the problems we had in, in meat production, uh, you know, in the meat facilities, uh, you know, we, we saw a number of cases, a number of outbreaks of COVID across the country, including in Tyson plants. Uh, well, this new lawsuit is challenging. Uh, you know, we had investors in, in Tyson who are challenging uh, Tyson and some of the statements it made to the Securities Exchange Commission uh, during, you know, the whole the whole situation. Um, they claimed that they weren't really up to date and, uh, you know, really given the information they needed to make good investment decisions. You know, it's one of those aspects of this whole thing that uh, no one's really ever talked about, you know, in terms of shares and what uh, what the COVID uh, outbreak did to, to companies, especially ag companies. Uh, so we'll see where this goes. But, you know, it's interesting when you start talking about the SEC, uh, not only does this lawsuit raise some questions, but, uh, you know, at some point you would think the SEC itself might start looking at some of this and, and to see whether uh, Tyson was above board. So we'll wait and see on that. Meanwhile, and we'll talk more about this with Brian Jennings a little bit later on. There has been some bipartisan uh, legislation introduced for funding for biofuels infrastructure. Yeah, uh, Senator Emmy Klobuchar of Minnesota and uh, Senator Joni Ernst in Iowa, uh, they introduced a bill, actually reintroduced a bill, uh, that would allow for $500 million in the next five years in grants for fuel retailers. And uh, it's basically designed to, to get more uh, more infrastructure in place for higher blends of ethanol, installing more blender pumps and that sort of thing. Um, $500 million seems like um, a lot of money, but when you consider that uh, the E15 market, for example, is just really in its infancy, I, I think this is uh, probably just a start. I think if this bill gets through Congress and is signed by the president, then I think you know it's a definite beginning. But I, I think if you talk to people in the industry, uh, 500 million is good, but it, you know there's definitely a lot more work to do after that. Biofuels really working hard not to be left behind in this push for electric vehicles. Yeah, absolutely, and I, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. You know, after the federal fleet uh, becomes electric, uh, you know what that what that's going to mean. I mean, I think um, 
you know, there's a lot to be said for, for where biofuels is and where it's been, and it's fairly established. And so I think, you know, it, it, it raises the question of, uh, you know, how far are we going to go with EVs if uh, there's just really not a lot of infrastructure in place? All right, Todd. We'll keep a close watch on it. Thanks a lot. I think you might have a phone call there. I'll let you go. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you, Mike. Take care. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. New meat export numbers are out. We'll talk with the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, Dan Hallstrom, up next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, will the new Congress and the new administration be able to get something done on a comprehensive infrastructure plan? Let's talk about it with Todd Van Hoos, President and CEO of the Farm Credit Council. I know that you are hopeful and doing all you can to uh, try to get something done on infrastructure. We're optimistic. We think the Congress and the Biden administration are going to be focused on infrastructure. And and we're having a pretty good reaction as we talk to people on Capitol Hill and in the Biden administration about the unique needs in rural America and hoping that they will focus on those. It seems here we have this great need in the country and seemingly bipartisan support. Can they get past the politics to get it done? I think there's an opportunity here. I think there's a willingness of both parties to try to find something that they can work on productively. And when you look at this, the scale of the issues involved, infrastructure is someplace that does have bipartisan support. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. 
Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Let's take a look at our meat export numbers from 2020. Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, joins us. Dan, thanks for being with us again. Let's start with some good news. Last year was a big, big year for pork exports, a record-breaking year. Yes, good morning, Mike. Uh, yeah, exactly right. Uh, uh, as expected, uh, we set a new record uh, in 2020. Uh, we're up about 11%, just under 3 million metric tons that were exported. So uh, that, that was encouraging. But, but I tell you, there's another thing that's encouraging within these numbers. And we all know that China was the big story last year. But, but actually, a lot of that growth happened in the first half of the year. Uh, the exports to China have actually slowed down uh, substantially in the second half of the year. And what we've seen since then is a lot of other markets have stepped up to the plate. And we have markets like uh, Japan and Mexico that have had seen uh, significant rebounds in the last part of the year. So that's good news. More markets and uh, uh, kind of spreads the, uh, the risk out. So if one comes down, like, as you said, China has slowed, others can pick that up. But that overall big year for pork exports in 2020. Uh, beef exports, though, down a bit, although there's some good news there in how, how they finished the year. Yeah, the, the fourth quarter, uh, December, we'll start with December. Uh, December on beef was up 8%, one of the largest months uh, since early uh, this year, uh, at about 120,000 tons. Uh, but the fourth quarter, as you said, uh, was really robust. We were up about 8 or 9% over the third quarter in terms of growth. And, uh, and once again, uh, similar to the pork conversation, it was broad-based growth across several countries, Japan, Mexico, uh, China, in the case of beef, uh, South America and Central America as well. So I think that even though we were down for the year and a lot of that impact was from the summer months uh, where we were down uh, with, the, with the shutdowns with food service, um, we're, we're well positioned, I think, for a, a rebound going into 2021. So what do these 2020 numbers tell us when you have a record in pork exports and even though down some in beef still finishing strong in the year during a pandemic? What does that tell us? Well, despite all the chaos and all the, uh, you know, the uncertainty around uh, back to last spring uh, globally, despite all that, people are still eating. Uh, consumers uh, demand a high quality U.S. beef and pork. Uh, and, and we're seeing that in the numbers. Now, it's by no, ma by no means business as usual. I mean, it was, there was massive disruptions and a lot of shifts that had to go on. Retail is booming. E-commerce platforms are booming. And I think that's one of the positives we can take into 2021. We can build on the momentum at retail, the momentum on e-commerce e platforms, and you know what's going to happen in 2021 over over the course of the year 
we're going to see tourism start to come back. We're going to see food service start to come back in some of these regions around the world that have, are still impacted today. One, one that stands out is Latin America, Mexico, Central America. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that momentum from last year combined with with uh, this rebound in 2021, uh, I think it bodes well. And we are actually forecasting new records to be set on beef and pork uh, uh, for 2021 as well. Interesting, especially with China, because you don't know, right? I mean, if they were slowing in the fourth quarter, what are you expecting from them as far as purchases here in 2021? Well, as it relates to pork, uh, our, our forecasts are down for uh, for 2021. Uh, it, it, you can pick a number. I mean, they're all over the board. Our number is about 15 to 20 percent down, which on the surface sounds, you know, really dramatic. But even if it's down 20 percent, it's still the second largest year ever uh, for uh, pork exports to China. They are definitely trying to rebuild their herds, but uh but that, that there's more work to be done there yet. It's not back to where we were to pre-COVID levels. Um, so they're going to still need to, uh, even though they're going to be expanding their, their repopulation, there's still going to be robust demand for, uh, for pork in China in 2021. should also point out that U.S. lamb exports also hit a record in 2020. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for mentioning that. I, I, I mistakenly left that out, but Dramatic growth uh, in, in the NAFTA countries, Mexico and Canada, uh, Caribbean, and, and, and we're starting to see some, you know, albeit slow progress, we're seeing progress in some of the Asian countries like Taiwan and Japan. So, uh, yeah, um, I think indicative of the fact that despite all the disruptions around COVID, uh, lamb consumption globally is, is growing as well. So... Hopefully 2021 is a year that things bounce back as far as people being able to get out and go to restaurants and things like that. Um, but it, it's going to be interesting. We've talked a lot about this, Dan. It'll be interesting what carries over from the pandemic as far as the way people purchase food, more online, more in-home, that type of thing. I think without a doubt. I think uh, I think these e-commerce platforms, the online aspect, the convenience aspect was there prior to covid uh, it's more ingrained now than it was ever globally. Uh, certain markets are more ingrained than others. That that will definitely continue. And and while we, as I mentioned earlier, we're forecasting new records this year, it, it's by no means business as usual. There, it's going to be bumpy. Um, there's still waves, uh, rebreaks in some of these countries. Japan, our largest market, still in a red state with their with their uh, lockdowns. But overall, um, I think the, the progress will be there as vaccines are rolled out. And there's every reason to think that 2021, while it might be bumpy, hopefully is not as bumpy as 2020. We have seen, um, obviously, the demand stay strong, distribution changes. Uh, we've also seen here in the U.S., I know, like uh, uh, popularity for products like ground pork that that has grown have you seen that in in foreign markets too where uh maybe different cuts or different products uh, are catching on or gaining in popularity oh without a doubt yeah ground pork's a good example actually uh, that's been a staple in japan for years and uh and we saw significant growth in the season ground pork business in japan uh, this last year, a lot of it has to do with the Japan-U.S. Ag Agreement that was implemented in January of last year. But there's other markets like Canada seeing uh, increases in ground pork. And, and on the processed uh, side, 
processed pork and processed beef, uh, you know, once again, in that, along the lines of a demand for convenience and quality, uh, these are areas that we don't talk a lot about, but this higher value process side uh, is also a category that's growing uh, significantly in a lot of regions around the world. So as we look ahead here at 2021, you sound very optimistic that this could be a, a big uh, year for for meat exports. How have ha, has your staff been able to resume some more normal activities and market development work around the world? Yes, most most definitely. Um, you know, there's a lot of parts of Asia, uh, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Vietnam, where it looks very much normal. I wouldn't say it's normal yet, but it's pretty close. Uh, very, there's either no lockdowns or very limited. Um, there's other parts of the world like Latin America that are still very much locked down. So, but I think the trend lines toward a more normal uh, status. Uh, we just have to be ready for. We have to be ready for change because, as I said earlier, I think we can expect some some additional waves to hit in some of these key markets. There's going to be a little bit of disruption. Uh, but nothing like 2020, in my opinion. I, I think, as I said, as vaccines are rolled out, there should be more stability in the market, which gives us every reason to, to be more optimistic, I think, going uh, forward. And there's always a lot of competition. How are our competitors doing in these markets? Yeah, the, the, the secret is out that the, the value of these markets it has been for a while. So it's extremely competitive. Uh, the Australians on the beef side, the Canadians, uh, Brazilians, etc. Uh, everyone's uh, trying to get a piece of the pie, and the same thing on the pork side with the Europeans. But, but let's keep in mind one of the biggest selling points we have is our high-quality grain-fed products and our and our reputation for safety. So, you know, I think uh, if we're on a level playing field, I put us up against anybody because I think we uh, were able to compete. All right, Dan. Look forward to a good 2021. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Mike. Take care. Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. All right, up next, a lot happening with biofuels, new legislation being introduced to fund uh, uh, infrastructure improvements. Uh, What about the ongoing push for electric vehicles? Where does that leave biofuels? We'll talk about all that with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol, coming up next. And does he see... uh, a pathway towards an alliance with the oil industry to take on the challenge of electric vehicles or is that not a possibility we'll get his thoughts on that coming up next stay with us you're listening to aoa Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. 
They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Grain markets are mostly mixed with traders waiting for the February WASDE report out later Tuesday, which should be supportive for recent gains. As U.S. corn exports continue to run at a record pace, USDA is expected to rise exports by 150 million bushels to 200 million bushels. The average ending stock number is expected to fall to 1.369 billion bushels from 1.522 billion bushels in January. Dryness has returned to Argentina and southern Brazil and is expected to extend to the end of the month. On the Board of Trade, March corn is trading a penny and a fraction higher at 565. The May contract up a penny at 562 and three quarters. Looking at soybeans, the March contract up 14 and a fraction at 1402. The May contract up 13 and a fraction at 1399 and a quarter of a cent. For the wheat, Chicago wheat March down five and three quarters at 650. Kansas City wheat March down five and a half cent at 634. Minneapolis spring wheat March down down five and a fraction at 630. The May contract down six cents at 640 and a fraction. Cash cattle prices are expected to increase again this week, but it may be a bit more difficult for feedlots to hold out much longer due to escalating feed prices. Packers may hold on to no more than steady prices. If there is a sense of urgency to sell, hogs remain in a solid upward trend, but are ripe for a future price correction. On the Board of Trade, April live cattle trading 20 cents lower at 123.75. The June contract down 25 cents at 119.77. March feeder cattle 15 cents higher at 130. 37.60. The April contract down five at 141.42. For lean hogs, the May contract down 67 at 83.60. The June contract down 72 at 89.35. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Egg Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. I can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with geeks on site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. It seems like there's always a lot going on with the biofuels industry, and here to kind of 
sort through some of it with us is Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, good to talk with you again. Let's start with some uh, legislation that has been introduced, bipartisan introduction of legislation that would uh, help fund some infrastructure improvements for biofuels. Yeah, as you said, Mike, no shortage of topics in the in the ethanol world uh, as usual, but we're really encouraged by this bill that was introduced just yesterday by Senators Klobuchar of Minnesota and Ernst of Iowa, as you say, bipartisan support. And their bill would create a new program, a grant cost share program at the Department of Agriculture to help get the infrastructure out there to make sure that retailers can sell E15, E30, and E85, as well as higher biodiesel blends to their customers, really building on the work that previous Secretary and and now incoming Secretary Vilsack did, uh, and certainly the work that that Secretary Perdue did uh, more recently. So we're really encouraged by that, and I think it's important because there's going to be a lot of emphasis on electric vehicles and charging stations and pushing for EVs, We need parity when it comes to infrastructure support because biofuels are going to be part of the picture in the future, a big part of the picture. So we've got to make sure that there's infrastructure support for ethanol and biodiesel as well. Okay, you've touched on a key topic here, one that you and I have talked about for a long time. I mean, this is no surprise as push towards electric vehicles. We've seen it coming for some time now. The key now is to make sure the biofuels don't get left out, uh, that uh, they are uh, included in this picture moving forward on these climate issues and how and energy issues moving forward. Uh, how concerned are you or are you concerned about the possibility of biofuels kind of getting pushed aside in this this ongoing effort we hear so much about, this push towards electric vehicles? You're right. We have talked about this, and the idea that electric vehicles would sort of take over and take market share away from uh, biofuels in the future is certainly causing a lot of anxiety for, for a lot of us. And I would say I'd be concerned if we didn't put this into context, but putting it into the context I think is really important. First of all, the goals that folks have, whether it's the president or General Motors about electric vehicles, are very aspirational. Um, Electric vehicles today make up 2% of all vehicles on U.S. roads. In fact, if you count the fact that a lot of electric vehicles, almost 90% of EVs, actually are hybrids that use gasoline and or ethanol blends, um, less than a percent of the vehicles on the road today are EVs. And so the numbers are going to increase, but we know that internal combustion engines that need ethanol blends are going to be around for decades. In fact, through this century, I guarantee you, there's going to be plenty of demand for liquid fuels. And I think it's through that contextual lens that we need to make sure we don't sort of knee-jerk try to attack EVs and instead look at maybe an opportunity to partner with EVs when it comes to new policies that would reduce greenhouse gas emissions creating a market for both higher ethanol blends because we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions today in EVs in the future. Um, One final thought on EVs, most EVs are not zero emission. Most EVs in the Midwest today are being plugged into power that's generated from coal or natural gas, and those vehicles certainly have 
significant greenhouse gas emission concerns. And so we've got a lot going for us in ethanol. I'm not sure we have to spend a lot of our time trying to beat up EVs. Good points. Really, those are good points for us all to keep in mind. The thing is, when something is new, like electric vehicles, now they've been around for a while, but this is a new push, and people get all excited about something new, and that seems where the attention all goes. But uh, these are points that you brought out about biofuels that need to be kept in mind. We're talking with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. So, you know, people, some people act like we just switch all overnight to EVs, and as you pointed out, that's not going to happen. The, the infrastructure changeover alone would be massive and take a long time. But wh- what do you make of, of General Motors talking about phasing out combustible engines uh, by 2035? Well, Mike, first of all, I ha- sort of have to chuckle because I've been around a long time, as I know you have, my friend, and 15 years ago, I recall, around the time of the Super Bowl, in fact, GM ran these TV ads, live green, go yellow, and they made huge promises to dramatically ramp up the production of flexible fuel vehicles, trying to sort of take advantage of the popularity of the newly passed renewable fuel standard and ethanol at the time. And they didn't follow through on those aspirational goals. Yes, they cranked out a lot of FFEs, but not as many as they promised. And Here we are 15 years later, and they're sort of making these aspirational lofty promises about EVs. And I sort of think it's sort of here we go again, and GM is is kind of playing to what they see as politically popular. Um, And I don't necessarily think that they're going to follow through on those goals. I could be wrong, but I guess it's just another another grain of salt, I think, for us to, to take into consideration when it comes to some of these announcements we're hearing. Another attack on uh, renewable fuels in the Senate recently by Senator Cruz, basically wanting to cap uh, REN values. Uh, your, your biofuels champions were able to defeat that in the Senate. What were, your, what were your thoughts on that latest effort? Well, uh, Senator Cruz is just going to keep com- coming after us, I guess. This is a 3 a.m. vote on a Friday night on but- budget reconciliation and Ted Cruz was only able to get 25 fellow senators to join him to cap RIN prices at 10 cents. You might recall he made a, a Hail Mary effort to do this under President Trump uh, as well and was pushed back. I'm just really grateful that, you know, 74 senators opposed this. Uh, Ted Cruz only got one Democrat to vote with him, Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Hopefully this puts a nail in the coffin of this awful idea of of really ruining the renewable fuel standard forever by capping the value of these RIN credits, which is really the incentive for these refiners to blend renewable fuels into their petroleum products. So I'm glad that he got beaten back badly. I'm glad it was a bipartisan vote to beat this back. Um, we've got to get the RFS back on track, not, not rewind the clock and, and cap RIN prices. Now here's, I find this a fascinating topic um, with this push for EVs. Could this bring about some kind of an alliance between the oil industry and the biofuels industry if the oil industry felt really threatened by EVs? Uh, First of all, I I would say uh, it it strikes me as ironic because they should have been working with your industry all along, but maybe this brings it about. 
from your viewpoint on the biofuel side, would you be in favor of something like that? Would you be skeptical of something like that? What are your thoughts? I'm a huge skeptic, Mike. I really am of a political alliance between oil refiners and electric, or excuse me, oil refiners and, and ethanol supporters when it comes to the future. I get the natural tendency. We both make liquid fuels. EVs are going to cut into our market share. Why don't we join forces and fight off the EVs? But I think that's the wrong political calculation. I think EVs are going to increase no matter what, but their numbers are so minuscule, they're not going to take market share from us for years and years and years. If Biden and Congress are focused on policies to get to net zero emissions by 2050, we have more in common with EVs than we do with fossil fuels. And that's why I think we've got to be brave in this moment and resist the temptation to join forces with the refiners. We've got to build new political alliances that enable ethanol to, to grow in market share, even though overall fuel use will shrink. Let's go from 10% of 140 billion gallons to 30% of 100 billion gallons in the future. That's the vision I have, and that's what we're going to try to accomplish. But the, there's, a, there's a heavy temptation out there to join forces with the oil sector, so we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, very interesting indeed. So, so what's your initial take on Michael Regan uh, as we expect him soon to be confirmed to be the next EPA administrator. He talked a lot about biofuels during his confirmation hearing. He did, and I'm really glad that Senators Ernst and others really pressed him on our topics. He said the RFS would be a priority. He said that EPA would use transparency and they wouldn't surprise anybody with the decisions they make. He said they'd follow the law uh, and the latest science. We said a lot of the right things, but in many ways, Michael Regan is still sort of an unknown commodity to us. And so we're going to have to work carefully with him, uh, but we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, I suppose, at this early stage. He's in a very different place than Scott Pruitt was uh, under President Trump. Recall Scott Pruitt, as attorney general of Oklahoma, had actually sued, uh, taken ethanol to court on two fronts. One, the RFS, two, E15 approval. And so we knew going in that Scott Pruitt was going to cause some problems for us. Michael Regan doesn't carry that same baggage, so we're hoping that we can turn the page with him. But, boy, we've got to be cautious. We've, we've got to, you know, be vigilant with, with him at EPA and really press forward in trying to get the RFS back on track. Yep, need actions, uh, not just words, and we'll see what we get uh, uh, from this administration on that. All right, Brian, lots, as we said, lots going on. Really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. 
you can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. So let's start with the latest news concerning a case against ethanol duties in Peru. What can you tell us? The decision there is that they are reversing an earlier decision to impose import duties on U.S. ethanol going into Peru. Peru, as you might know, has been a rapidly emerging market for us over the past several years, and we began to export a fair amount of fuel ethanol to that country and then they slapped this import tax on us and it really put the brakes on our exports to that marketplace. So the body that reviewed that tariff and looked at our challenge of that tariff uh, sided with us and they will be reversing that import tax and and that should really reopen that market to our product. We desperately need demand right now so uh, very excited to hopefully get back into into Peru in a big way. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Here today to help us understand the current state of soybean processing is Alex Bush, who manages Oilseeds Crush for CHS. Alex, we're seeing record U.S. soybean crush levels. What role does foreign supply and demand have in this? Well, Mike, we're seeing additional demand specifically in soybean meal in the global picture here today. Most of this is stemmed due to tighter soybean supply coming out of South America as we round out their old crop season. And also seeing some additional growth in China on the hog production side as they're digging out from uh, ASF here in the last uh, year, year and a half. So seeing these incremental increases in demand is what's able to push the U.S. crush capacity to these record levels that we've seen so far this marketing year. So how does record crush capacity affect U.S. farmers? Well, with the record capacity, U.S. crushers are crushing as hard as we've seen, and and so that's creating additional demand points for those producers' grain. It's also resulting in lowering our our ending stocks um, out of the U.S., causing prices, you know, future market has really rallied here in the last few months. So that producer is able to sell his grain for, you know, higher value than, than what we've seen here previously in the previous marketing year. Alex, do you expect the current conditions to continue much longer? 
Sure. You know, right now we got both corns and soybeans rallying and beans are really going to be fighting for acres to be planted this spring. And typically when we look at these short supplied uh, marketplaces, we have a longer tail than you do when we have larger carryout. So we're, I mean, I'd expect to see this carry into the 21, 22 marketing year um, and see what, what kind of crop the U.S. produces uh, along with the South American crop next year. That's Alex Bush, who manages Oilseeds Crush for CHS. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from CHS at cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, a lot of farmland is rented each year. I want to tell you now about a new digital platform to help simplify and streamline financing farmland rentals. Tillable, an Illinois-based company, it has developed a program and that we're going to learn about now called Tillable Finance and how that will help farmers in their financing of rented land. Joining us is Corbett Cull, CEO and founder of Tillable. Corbett, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us about this new platform, this new tool that you've developed. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on the show today. Yeah, so uh, Tillable is a, a farmland rental platform. And one of the challenges that we identified over the course of the last couple of years is that you know farmers have a lot of different uh, opportunities to rent or to finance things like tractors, uh, seed, uh, other inputs, et cetera. But as far as financing their rent, uh, they're pretty much uh, stuck with uh, going to their local small town bank and, uh, and taking out an operating loan. And what we had experienced is farmers frequently uh, it was taking them, you know, several weeks to get um, their operating loans approved so that they could make their rent payment. And uh, we decided, hey, you know, what if we could offer uh, farm rent financing through the platform so that they, if they find a new farm that they want to rent and they want to expand, uh, we can make it easy, fast, uh, and, of course, affordable for those growers. Okay, so how does it work? Kind of take us through the steps. Sure. So a, uh, a grower can go onto the platform, uh, click on uh, uh, Tillable Finance, and uh, fill out an application to finance uh, their rent uh, payment uh, through the platform. So it's a totally uh, a digital um, application process. Uh, and then once they submit that in 24 to 48 hours, uh, they will uh, receive uh, notice back if they've been uh, approved uh, for that uh, farm rent uh, financing. Um, they can do it from their phone. Uh, they can do it from their computer, from their iPad, whatever. We've tried to make it super easy. Uh, and then if they, if they have any questions when they're going through the application process, uh, they can also uh, give us a call on the phone, and we'll uh, answer any questions or help them walk through the application process. But they don't have to go into a bank. Uh, it's uh, The application process is relatively straightforward, 
and uh, and then they can uh, guarantee uh, you know basically on time payments uh, for their landowners. So we really feel like it creates a uh, a great option uh, for growers that are looking to expand their operations. So basically, you you pair eligible borrowers with a participating lender and and kind of streamline that process as much as possible. Yes, that is that is true. So we're. Uh, we're backed by a very, uh, a very well-established uh, financial uh, services uh, company that uh, that has a lot of experience in uh, agricultural uh, lending, and uh, and then you know it's a complete uh, digital application process, and then uh, we're even uh, facilitating uh, the repayment of the loan. Uh, at the end of the season through the platform as well. So we're trying to eliminate as much of the paper and pencil uh, as has typically been the case in uh, in most borrowing that uh, that farmers have to do. Now this is currently being offered in parts of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Illinois. Are you looking to expand that? Uh, yeah, great question, Mike. So yes, we're expanding. We're going to be expanding uh, throughout the Midwest uh, going into the fall of uh, 2021. Uh, so we wanted to start with uh, uh, a, a slightly reduced, uh, you know, footprint uh, for the 2021 rental season. Uh, but then going into the fall this year, uh, we'll probably expand into another. Uh, six, seven states and, and be able to offer uh, lending throughout the vast majority of the Midwest. And there's a lot of, I mentioned this earlier, a lot of farmland rented. Yeah, that is, that is true. So the statistics we have are about 40% of all farmland is rented, but the, the more shocking number is about 80% of all farmers rent some amount of land, right? So the rental business is very important for a farmer's ability to uh, expand his operation. And when a farm comes up for rent, instead of having to go all the way through a large, complex, you know, uh, expansion of his operating loan, he could just finance that rent payment through Tillable. Uh, and we're trying to make it very easy, very quick, and also affordable. How quick could that be? Uh, as as quick as uh, 24 to 48 hours. Uh, so uh, the advantage of it being all digital is the application comes in, uh, it goes over to our lending partner, uh, they very quickly go through things, and then we give the grower notification of, uh, of approval and what rate they've been approved at. So uh, much, much faster than, uh, in, in our opinion, any other uh, uh, lending that's available to growers today. Well, we know there's often a lot of competition for some of that land that's uh, up for rent. Yeah, you don't, uh, you can't really uh, wait around too much, especially uh, in markets uh, like what we're seeing today with commodities prices uh, being so high. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of growers are looking to expand their operations. Uh, as, as, again, especially when you've got commodities prices where they are today, you know, growers are looking to, you know, increase their base operation and uh, increase their top line revenue. Okay, real quick, where do they go to get more information, find out more about it? Uh, you can go to tillable.com, and uh, uh, it's very uh, prominent on our website uh, where to find uh, information about uh, tillable finance. 
Uh, you can also uh, feel free to give us a call at uh, 833-845-5225. Uh, so either go to the website, uh, click on okay. financing, or give us a call. That's Corbett Cole, CEO and founder of Tillable. Thanks, Corbett. That wraps it up for today. Thanks for joining us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.